Well, good morning. It is great to see you. Wow, it's wonderful to hear you sing. To hear the saints singing is a very special thing. Justin, we're so thrilled for you and your family this morning. Let's just thank God for what he's done in Justin. Yes, yes, yes. We come into this morning, and I'd like to just for a moment talk about regrets. We're going to climb off of that real quickly, but just uh, think for me with, for a minute about regrets. I have uh, some great regrets. One of them happened, three of them actually happened all in one day. Um, it was on a day when I told my dad no, when he had already told me twice never to tell him no again. He didn't do that with my dad. And then as he approached me with his belt off, I said, I'm too old, you're never going to spank me again. That was my second mistake. The third mistake was, as he finished his duty, I said to him, if you try this tomorrow, I'll do the same thing. And his response was, well, I'll do the same thing too. I have great regrets over that, to be honest with you. That wasn't a good day for me. Some of y'all have regrets. Um, There was actually a study done by a lady who spent a lot of time with hospice. And as she kind of polled people as they were passing, she found that there were five regrets that a lot of people had that were kind of consistent. Let me give those to you real quick. Many said, I wish I pursued my dreams and aspirations and not the life others expected of me. Some said, I wish I didn't work so hard. Many said, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings and speak my mind. Some of y'all already have that gift. Don't up the game, okay? (laughs) Some said, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And then the final one that seemed to rise to the top was, I wish I had let myself be happier. Those are the kind of regrets a lot of people have about their lifetime on planet Earth. And they're thinking about those things as they know their time has come. I would say to you that we believers are going to have a different kind of moment of regret. It's not going to happen when we're finishing our life on this planet. For many of us and most of us, if we're not very careful and we don't focus our faces in the right direction on Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his kingdom's work, our greatest moment of regret is going to be when we stand before Christ for our rewards. You see, our rewards come based on how we focused our attention and whose kingdom we served. If we prioritize the kingdom of God and his work, those things that are eternal, rather those things that are material, then we're blessing the kingdom of God. We receive our eternal rewards based on what we've done for the kingdom, not what we've done for ourselves. Jesus said it very succinctly when he said these words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He goes on to give a real important principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In essence, what he's saying to us and to those people at that time is this. You treasure something. The question is, do you treasure my things more than you treasure your things? Because you give your heart to that which you treasure, and you lay up your rewards in heaven by what you're doing for eternal purposes rather than earthly purposes. That's what he's telling us here that we need to keep in mind. In fact, he goes on in that passage to get very specific when he says what to prioritize. He says what to seek first is what he says, and he says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. What's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, hey, just prior to his stating these words I just read to you, he told them that he would take care of everything. I will meet all of your needs. You don't need to worry about what you wear, where you live, or if you'll eat. 
I'll meet all of those needs. And that makes it possible for you to seek first the kingdom of God. So while we worry about those things that he's willing to take care of, we need not. If we focus on doing the things that um, move the kingdom forward, he'll take care of all of those things. But I want you to capture top priority are the things of the kingdom of God. I say that to you this morning because we're moving into this time of consecrating ourselves before the Lord. We're about to go into eight days of prayer and fasting leading up to a sacred assembly when Claude King will be with us next Sunday. I'm praying every one of you will be involved with this. I think it's vital to you and to our church for you to have those moments with God over the next week. We'll talk about what that means in just a few minutes. But what I want you to hear is what we're helping you do during these eight days is to refocus your attention from the earthly to the eternal. And when an entire church does that, they're prepared for God to do what only God can do. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is fasting and prayer. This is not taught on very much in churches. Uh, I meet with some pastors and talk about fasting and prayer, and their response is, I don't think I'll head down that path because my people would never do that. That's really a sad statement right there, is that the people of God wouldn't do something that God calls us to do. We're leading you in that direction because Scripture calls us to that place. So I pray that you'll join us. So this is a quick teaching more than a preaching on fasting and prayer. You might want to take out your outlines and take some notes. I think that'd be very wise of you this morning because you want to look over those maybe this week. But let's talk about fasting and prayer. First of all, what is prayer and fasting? Ronnie Floyd, who is now the president of the executive board for the Southern Baptist Convention, um, he had a wife who had cancer and he began fasting and praying and she was healed. And he gives this definition of fasting and prayer. Fasting is the abstinence from food with a spiritual goal in mind for a spiritual purpose. You notice there's nothing earthly in that statement. Now, I've rewritten that on our behalf to kind of give us direction as we as Eastwood Baptist Church head down this path. Here's what I've written. Fasting is the abstinence from food with a spiritual goal being to see each of us transform more into the likeness of Christ for the spiritual purpose of seeing the Holy Spirit bring revival. That's what we're fasting and praying is so that we can prepare the church, purify the church in such a way God might rain down revival on us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's move on. Some would say that prayer and fasting is not for today's church, that that was a bygone thing that happened in other eras, but today that's not a thing. I'm going to show to you that that's not what Jesus said, that he didn't set that aside after a certain era. Matthew 6, 16 through 18 says this, and when you fast... Would you just underline that if you've got there on your notes or, or circle it or if you don't have that on your notes, write it down. Jesus said, and when you fast, not if you fast or if we used to fast. He says, when you fast, it is assumed that the church of Jesus Christ will fast and pray. It is assumed. He's, it's a given. That's why you don't hear a lot of direction, do this, do this, do this, because it is assumed practice. Now let's move on and you know, see if we can get that even more solidified. Matthew 9, 14, and 15 find some of John the Baptist's disciples asking Jesus a question. Here's how the passage reads. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What Jesus is saying to John the Baptist's disciples is, I am the bridegroom. 
The church is the bride throughout the New Testament. That's kind of a metaphor for the church. Uh, we're the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. He says, when I'm no longer, you celebrate while I'm with you, but when I'm no longer with you, then is the time to fast and pray. When he says they will fast, he's saying the church will fast. The church was birthed at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost on the 120, you remember that moment if I describe it a little bit? They began, went into the streets and began speaking languages they did not know through the power of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people came to Christ and the church was birthed. The church was birthed then and the church will continue until Jesus comes at the rapture. We are the they that he is speaking of. They will fast. So yes, we are called to fasting and prayer. Now you may ask the question, why fast? We're going to land on this passage and stay here for the rest of our time almost. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 17, 14. I'd love to hear those pages turning. Matthew 17, beginning at verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Now capture that with me. They could not cure him. In essence, they could not cast out the demon that was in him. And Jesus answered and said, listen closely, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Don't forget those two words, unbelieving and perverted. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, that is the demon, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. The disciples could not cast the demon out, although at an earlier time, Jesus had given them the authority in his name to cast out demons. They're perplexed, and we're going to find out that they asked Jesus about this in a few moments. Then, Jesus came, then, then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Why privately? I would imagine because they were embarrassed. Can you imagine having done something again and again and again and again, and you bring your son, believing that this is going to happen, and they kind of proudly say, yeah, bring him here, we got this one. And they begin doing whatever they do, and nothing happens. They were embarrassed. So they got Jesus off to the side and asked, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the sight of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. But now listen to verse 21. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. They needed a power beyond themselves they would come through prayer and fasting. So let's climb into this a little bit. First of all, prayer and fasting ushers in the power of God. Prayer and fasting ushers in the power of God. You know, what we're praying for here, ultimately, we don't know if it'll happen soon or 10 years from now or 20 years from now or tomorrow. What we're praying for, ultimately, is for God to bring a great, great revival a moving of the Holy Spirit in the midst of hundreds of people in this church and see something outrageous take place through the work of God. That's what we're praying for. There was a time when one man who was not evidently an outstanding orator preached a sermon and started what is called the Great Awakening. When our country was fading from faith, a man fasted and prayed, and the Great Awakening began. Let me just share a 
few paragraphs from a book that describes what happened. This preacher's approach, that is Jonathan Edwards, this preacher's approach to speaking was calm. A surprise perhaps to some, given the fame of his singularly most famous sermons. His hands did not flail the air, chasing the devil from his hell, nor, nor did his gaze wild-eyed toward the sky, calling down fire and brimstone from heaven. His power was not human. Did you capture that? His power was not human. It was God at work in the heart of a servant who had been with the Holy of Holies. You all, it was said that he read his manuscript, and the manuscript was so close to his face that you could not see his eyes. Anyone in this room who had a 101 communications class realizes that the most powerful part of your body when you're preaching and speaking are your eyes. But you couldn't even see his eyes. Those who were acquainted with Reverend Edwards knew that prior to the delivery of his message, he had not eaten a mouthful of food for three days. Nor during that time had he closed his eyes to sleep. Instead of pouring nutrients into his body, he sated his hungry soul with the food of the Spirit. Instead of giving in to sleep, he pursued communion with his God that was as deep and far-reaching as any time ever in God's presence. Over and over, Edwards was heard to pray, O Lord, give me New England. O Lord, give me New England. Lathered in sweat and tears, when Jonathan Edwards rose from his knees and made his way into the public that historic Sunday, those who saw him were transfixed, saying later that he looked as though he had been gazing straight into the face of God. Even before he began to speak, said eyewitnesses, spiritual dread and heaviness of conviction of sin fell upon the audience. He preached and preached until the crowded assembly were moved almost beyond control. It's said that one man jumped up and rushed down the aisle, crying, Edwards, have mercy! Edwards, have mercy! Others clutched the back of the pews for fear of falling into the fiery pit of hell itself. Most thought the day of judgment had dawned, and for some, undoubtedly it had. Everyone in that assembly found himself standing in awe of, not Jonathan Edwards preaching, in awe of the holiness of God. My brothers and sisters, revival won't come because you've got a great choir and you do. It won't come because Dane is one of the greatest worship leaders I've ever seen. It won't come because somebody who really does know how to preach is standing where I am today. Revival will come when God's people fall on their knees and fast and pray and say, God, we're here. We want you to do what only you can do. It will come as we as a body of Christ beg God for his grace to fall so heavily upon us that the world says, I don't know what's going on over there, but it's beyond human. That's when it'll happen. So let me answer the next thought that is always a concern. Why fast and pray? You'll find that most people who fast and pray are in the Old Testament, it's the um, prophets telling of people who are far from God, who have moved away from God, that they need to fast and pray and have a sacred assembly so that they can be back in right alignment with God. And that is really our longing here as we come together. So coming back to the Father in search of the healing of his demon-possessed son, verse 17 says this, 16 and 17, I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you, as I mentioned, unbelieving, catch these two words, 
unbelieving and perverse generation. Unbelieving means this. Unbelieving means that you're not connected enough to God. And we're not and when we're not connected enough to God, we begin to doubt God's power. Did you catch what I just said? I've noticed in my journey uh, in pastoring and discipling and training disciple makers in churches that when you start mentioning the work and power of God to people, and sometimes they'll say, let me just be honest with you, Rick, I'm not so sure that God does that anymore. Now, there is a theological bent on this. There's what's called cessationism. Cessationism says that there's a period of time that God did the miraculous, but he no longer does. He no longer does that, which is the craziest thing to me in the world because I can ask you, well, just do this. How many of y'all have known God to do a miracle no person could have done? Just raise your hand. Okay, for all you cessationists, I don't want you to miss this moment, all right? It's obvious God still does what only God can do. So let's go down that pathway first. But some of y'all have been where I've been when I didn't walk closely with God as I should have on a daily basis. I have doubted God. I have wondered about God's willingness to work or if he was even going to work. And that was true of me when I didn't walk closely with God daily. And what I found when I was interviewing people who had the same ideas, it came from they weren't spending time with God daily. Here's the deal. If you spend time with God daily, you normally start by being in the Word. It is impossible to read the Bible and not believe that God is a miraculous God. Because from the first verse to the last verse, it's God doing the miraculous. The only way that we can become confused about that is if some very logical, uh, some, I'm sorry, not logical, logic may be a problem. Some very learned theologian tells us God no longer does that. But I think we just proved that that's not true, didn't we? I think we just did. So what I want you to capture is this fact. You need to walk with God on a daily basis. We'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. He also speaks of it being a perverse generation. That is that you're too connected to the world. Here's the deal. If we're unconnected to God, too connected to the world, what's the antidote to get us back in right alignment with God. Fasting and prayer. That's what will get us back in right alignment with God. Again, prayer connects us to God. Listen closely. I'm afraid for many people in today's church, God is more of a concept than a person. Don't lose me right here, please. This will change your life. God is more of a concept than a person, or he's a theological perspective more than he is a person. We go to Sunday school classes and hear teachings about God, and we say, boy, I learned something new. I'm so excited. You come to worship and you hear sermons about God. You say, I didn't know that. There's a big aha moment. You go home excited that you've learned something new about God. As we learn more and more about God, it doesn't mean that we're connecting more deeply with God. Because if we perceive him to be a concept rather than a person, we never cry out to him to do what only he can do because a concept can't do anything. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You need to relate to God as God person, not think of God intellectually as God concept. And when you make that transition, the whole game changes. It is here that we say, I want to connect with God Who wouldn't want to daily talk to the creator of the universe? The person who sent his son so that we can be forgiven our sins, who loves us that much. 
Who wouldn't want to connect with that God? Listen, the more you connect with the person, God, the more you know His love. And the more you know His love, the more real the reality of your prayers. It is vital that you capture that prayer connects us to God. And what does fasting do? Fasting disconnects us from the world. Now here's the deal. We were made by God to be desirous beings. We have desires. We desire this, we desire that, we desire the other. I would say to you that we have two basic categories as believers of desire. One is desiring that of the flesh. The other is desiring that of the spirit. Catch me now. That which is fleshly is that which often is sinful. It is engaging with things that push us away from the holiness of God. God said, be holy as I am holy. We are to be pure as we live our lives in the presence of God. Live holy lives. Set apart lives. Lives that honor God by purity. On the other hand, if we're feeding the flesh, we're feeding the flesh with the things that push us away from this purity. And so we embrace the things of the flesh, and in time we become so desensitized that we no longer even realize that we're living fleshly lives rather than spirit-driven lives. And so we live in this space where we think we're doing just fine, where we're not even in alignment with God. That word perversion that is used there in that passage in the Greek actually means something that is distorted or twisted to the point that you're corrupted. Twisted, it's been twisted a little bit at a time, until at some point it is corrupted. If you want to take it to its fullest understanding, it's twisted and turned until, listen, until it's no longer in its natural position. When you became a follower of Jesus Christ, he aligned you perfectly with him. If you're like me, when you first were a believer, sinning didn't come to your mind much. I'll never forget the first time I said an off-color word. It was like a year after I was saved. And I was with some other guys who were believers who were older than me, And they were using terms that I would have never used. And I'll never forget saying an off-color word and thinking to myself, ooh, that didn't feel right. And over time, I let through some theological perspectives that got ingrained in my mind and through uh, moving into some spaces I shouldn't have moved into, I came to a point where I started saying some things that shouldn't have come from my lips and doing some things that I shouldn't have been doing. And I found myself in alignment with the flesh rather than alignment with the spirit. Well, fasting and prayer, my brothers and sisters, for some of y'all, you're going to be set free because you're going to be realigned next week. It's a beautiful thing to know the peace that comes from right alignment with God. Let me give you a little test to help you know if you find yourself out of alignment. When someone uses God's name to curse and there's no cringe factor, you've probably slipped into spiritual perversion. If you watch TV shows that depict nudity and sexual acts and there's no cringe factor, you're probably out of alignment. If you allow your children to engage in media that takes God's name in vain, makes light of Jesus, or gives honor to those whose lifestyle contradicts what God's plan was, you've probably slipped into a state of spiritual perversion. If you look at images or videos of the opposite sex, undressed or barely dressed, and there's no conviction you're probably out of alignment. If you read books or articles that question the person of God or make God out to be a myth 
and you halfway or fully agree, you have slipped into spiritual perversion. You say, how can he say that? That's so judgmental. Folks, I'm not judging you at all. What I'm telling you is this. When the things of this world become natural to you because you're that desensitized, you're out of alignment. We've got to be realigned. Now, the beauty of God is this. This is one thing I love God for because I've been out of alignment many times and had to be realigned. Is that God gives us spiritual solution to misalignment. And it's what we're calling you to do next week. It's this fasting and prayer, because here's what happens when you fast and pray. You have these desires that I mentioned, right? You have the desires for the flesh and desires of the things of the Spirit. Most days we feed the flesh, even if it's not sexual content or sensual content, it's food. Is anybody else in this room just a lover of food? Amen. I can get some amens out of that, I'm certain. I certainly am. You don't know this, but I've lost 80 pounds. But now this used to be when I was desiring food and didn't set it aside for the things of the Spirit, this was a normal day for me. I drive by myself every day. Nobody's watching me what food I eat. My wife is not with me sometimes. That's a beautiful thing. There was a time when I would stop three or four times at a fast food restaurant because I had a credit card that was paid for by the Kentucky Baptist Convention. I wasn't even paying for that food. And if I drove by a Dairy Queen and they had one of those deals on where you could get like five things for five bucks, I'm thinking to myself, I haven't tried two of those things. I'm going to get that box. Now the problem was I go to my next little town in Kentucky and there'd be a Taco Bell that had five things for five bucks. I haven't tried those five things. And the kicker was I almost always had to go buy Hardee's to get home. And they had a $5 box. 15 bucks a day cost me about 80 pounds. But I want you to hear the principle behind this little conversation with you, and that is this. I was feeding the flesh, and the enemy was winning in my heart. When the desire came... I moved toward the desire that was sinful rather than the desire that was godly. I had my choices, and I was moving toward that which was in the flesh rather than moving away from that so I could live in the Spirit. We sometimes need to be realigned. You see, that which you feed is that which grows. There's a great story of a grandfather with his grandson, and they're having a conversation. Here's how that goes. The grandfather told his son of a battle that goes on within all of us. He said, my son, the battle is between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is anger, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good. The other wolf is good. It's joy and peace and love and hope and humility and kindness and benevolence and empathy, and generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought for a minute and then looked at his father and said, which wolf wins? And the old granddad simply replied, the one that you feed. And so it is with the spirit and the flesh. If you feed the flesh, it will win. If you feed the spirit, it will win. 
Fasting and prayer is the key to refocusing us. So let's talk about how to fast and pray. Let's climb into that space. First of all, fast privately without the others knowing what you're doing. Fast privately without the others knowing what you're doing. Here's what Jesus said. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, your Heavenly Father, who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here's the deal. Back in Jesus' time, everybody came to the market on Mondays and Thursdays. The Pharisees, in order to look very pious and holier than everyone else, they would throw um, you know, stuff on their face and muss up their hair and wear wrinkled clothes, soiled clothes. Why? They wanted everybody to see how special they were, how much they were sacrificing for the things of God. You know what Jesus says here? I love his, the outcome of their pious, their pious lifestyle. They have received their reward. This is a very simple truth. The truth is this. If you do your fasting and tell people you're doing it to gain approval of them because they might be believers and you, they think how holy you are, how special you are, your reward was their opinion of you. On the other hand, if you fast and pray privately, the outcome is God honors your prayers. So make it private if you could. Secondly, spend time with God when you would normally prepare and eat meals. Spend time with God when you would normally prepare and eat meals. Now I realize for those of you that are like me, you travel in your work or you've got meetings in your office or whatever, that's a little more difficult for you uh, because you say, man, I've got business lunches and so forth and so on. Just do the best you can. One thing we don't want to do with our fasting and praying is become legalistic about it. Let me say that again. Don't become legalistic about it. So, you know, I started my fasting and praying two days ago, and Julie asked me, why are you doing it now? And I said, because I don't want to stand before the congregation and not say to them that I've been involved in this. So I started a couple of days ago. Now, this morning I had breakfast. Somebody might say, well, you broke your fast. No, I didn't. I prepared to preach is what I did. I didn't want to come in here exhausted and unable to give you my best. Don't become a legalist. I went back and told the choir during the last service, before the first service as they were rehearsing, I said, now listen, do us a favor. Eat dinner tonight. We don't need y'all passing out during the choir concert this evening. Eat dinner tonight. Don't be legalistic, but don't be passive either. Determine what you're going to do and then do it as best you can in the situation that you're in. But set aside these times and do this, okay? Um, set aside a place to spend time with God praying. If you can, set aside a place. If you've got a place in your home where you can get private, um, if you're married with children, ask your husband to take a time so they can watch the kids and you can watch the kids while he's doing his time. But set aside a time. Well, here's what I've learned. If you don't set aside a time and place, it probably won't happen. You'll find yourself taken into something else, okay? Set aside a time. Then utilize the consecrate the people guidebook. You should have gotten this in your Sunday school class or at some point if you don't have one of these you'll need this. You can pick one up at the information desk out here but be sure you leave with one of these. These are going to take you about 12 or 13 minutes. Maybe a little more if God gets into your heart and starts working in you. Daily devotions is what they basically are. During the rest of your time pray for God to be at work in your life. Pray for things you've never prayed for. Even do this and you'll realize God's greatness and his, uh, his presence with you in even more ways. 
you may want to just pray that he'll tell you what he wants you to pray about. You'll be amazed at God's whispers coming, giving you things that you'll consider praying about. Then choose your fast. This is what everybody's been wondering about, um, is what this all means. So somebody, one of the, somebody came to me and said, somebody asked me the question, is this like no food and water for eight days? My response was, don't do that, church, because if you do, we don't have enough people to do your funerals, all right? No, this is not no water or food for eight days, um, although that is biblical to go without food or water, but I wouldn't suggest that. Another option is water only. Uh, you could do water only. If you do water only, drink lots and lots and lots and lots of water. If you're led to go down that path, uh, drink lots and lots and lots of water. Let me throw the pause button on just a moment before I get into the third option. If you are diabetic or have some kind of illness that this would cause a real situation for you, God will be just as honored with your praying as he would be your fasting and praying. So don't do something crazy. Don't make a bad decision. Be wise in this. Okay, now, fourthly, uh, you might do no food till evening. Now, that's what I'm doing. Right now, I'm covering uh, my work with you guys here at the church as well as another full-time position that I have that's quite a few hours so I cannot go without, without meals. I just don't have the energy. I couldn't get done what I needed to get done. So what I'm doing is I'm not eating breakfast or lunch and having my dinner. That's what I'm doing. You might want to consider that. That's another option. And then some do just a juice fast. They don't do any hard food. They just do juice. If you do juice, I wouldn't suggest making it Coca-Cola. I'd suggest something a little more healthy than that. Uh, but some people do a juice fast. And there are other things that you could do. But I'm going to ask every, one thing of everyone. And for many of you, this is going to help you realize that the, uh, the wrong wolf is winning. I'm going to ask you to fast from any media that is ungodly. Nothing can misalign us, align, align us more quickly than watching something on the tube that is ungodly. Now, I will tell you, if you've got Netflix or you've got uh, what's Amazon Prime, you're going to find if you were to do a search for like Christian movies, you can, you can see some great movies online um, that are fantastic. And for some of y'all that would like to go a little deeper, you can even, even find uh, biographies uh, on film of some of the greatest theologians and believers um, that, that, that are around. So you can focus on those kinds of things. But I'd really suggest if you, if you watch things like Game of Thrones, which I pray no one does, or any of those kinds of things, um, you'll want to stay away from those completely. Uh, you'll be feeding the flesh for sure. So be very careful as you climb into this. Let me finish with just reminding us about the power of prayer and fasting in a community of people. There's a wonderful historical event that took place in Scotland some years ago. There was a small band of church leaders who were in a village uh, on an island, and they had begun praying for revival. Their reason for praying is one that many of you all may want to consider as you fast and pray, and that is because the young people in their culture were far from God and didn't even realize it. They were praying for a movement of God amongst those who were younger. They prayed for 18 months, meeting three nights a week, and sometimes they prayed through the night, praying for this revival to take place, but there was no evidence of any change. Then one night, a young deacon rose to his feet and opened his Bible and read Psalm 24, part of Psalm 24, and it reads like this. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall dwell in his holy place? And then God answers his own question. God answers his question with these words. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, 
he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Facing the men around him, that young man then said, Brethren, it seems to me to be just so much humbug to be waiting and praying as we are, in essence still not purified, if we, if, we are, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. So there in the straw, the men knelt and humbly confessed their sins to the Lord. And within a short period of time, by them purifying themselves before God, God began to pour out his spirit in an extraordinary awakening that shook the entire island what we're doing, my brothers and sisters, with these eight days of consecration prior to Claude coming next Sunday to be here to, to oversee a sacred assembly is we are going to individually, by fasting and praying, purify ourselves so that God can bring revival. Now I want to make something very clear. There's been a lot of confusion that Claude's coming so that he can usher in revival. That's not true. Claude can't usher in revival. Great revivals don't happen at any person's given time. It's not because you have revival services. It happens because people humble themselves before the Lord and seek his face and purify themselves. And in his time, as they continue to cry out to him, he responds. This is the beginning of creating an environment where God can do what only God can do. And may I say it as I did last Sunday. Every one of you are important to this initiative. I'm praying you'll involve yourself deeply this week and be here next Sunday at 10 into a sacred assembly where this community of believers will come together and consecrate themselves as one church in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Oh, I thank you, Father, for their attentiveness and for their love for you, for their unity and their care for one another. And Father, we're longing for something even greater than all of that. We're longing to see your Holy Spirit come and do his work in amazing ways. And we're trying to do our part so that we can prepare our hearts in such a way that you bless our hearts. Father, let us dive deeply into this fact that you want to do the things you want to do. And that the church as you long for it to be is like we see in the book of Acts. And for that to happen, we need to be people like we see in the book of Acts. So we're trying to become that. Help us in that, please. You keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, please. Some of y'all are here maybe and you don't know anything about this church stuff. This is really foreign to you and you thought, man, this is weird stuff this guy's talking about. I certainly understand. Uh, we're speaking a language that's new to you. Let me tell you a language that you can understand real easily. That is the language of the gospel. The gospel is the story of Christ and his love for you and his willingness to embrace you and take you into his heart. It simply means this. That before time began, God created a rule that must be um, dealt with, and that rule was this, that in order for there to be forgiveness of sin, there had to be a blood sacrifice. And that without forgiveness of sin, no one can enter heaven because no one with sin on them can ever enter heaven because God is perfect and can't be in the presence of sin. So God, in his great love for us, sent his son Jesus Christ to be that sacrifice, to shed his blood in the shedding of his blood, all the blood that ever needed to be shed was shed. Then God tells us, for those of us who are not Christians, that in order to receive that gift of forgiveness and being washed white as snow, that all we have to do is this. And listen closely, because if you believe what I'm suggesting and then you're willing to do what God requests of us, this morning you can have this relationship with God and be eternally in heaven with Jesus when you die. First of all, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Answer that question, yes or no. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If you said yes, then go with me to the next question. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead three days later? That Jesus died, but then he came back to life because he is God. Only man ever in history to do that. Then if you would be willing to simply accept those two facts, if you believe those two facts, that Jesus is the Son of God, died resurrected from the dead, then you're willing to say, forgive me for my sins and wash me white as snow, and I am willing to do my best, although you'll not be perfect, no one in this room is, as I said earlier in this service. Then you're willing to turn and walk away from those things that God is not God-honoring, sins you're involved in, lifestyles you're involved in. You're willing to do your best to live for Him in the way He'd have you live. Then you can become a Christian this morning, and you'll know what the joy of God is in your life, and you'll find peace you've never known before, and you'll experience something that you'll experience for the rest of your life. Jesus Christ showing his love to you like no one ever has. Now, if you'd like to join me in becoming a Christian, and you believe the things I've just stated, and you're willing to turn around and walk away from those things that don't honor God, just repeat this prayer after me in your heart, believing these words. Father, I am a sinner. I know you can remove all sin from me. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died on a cross for me. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Please forgive me for every sin I've ever committed or will commit. And I will do my best to live a life that is honoring of you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to, I'll be standing here when we're going to, we're going to start singing a song in just a second, and I'd love to meet you and talk to you about your next steps. If you prayed that prayer, please come see me. And if you don't come see me now, I'll be down here waiting to talk to anybody who would talk to me about this. I'd love to speak with you. If there's someone in the room this morning who's just, you're overwhelmed and you're thinking, I really, really, really am asking God to do what he can do here at Eastwood Baptist Church, or you just have a need that you want to pray about, the altar is wide open. There's nothing quite like coming to the altar to pray because it shows our humility to God and to others where we come and humble ourselves before him, bowing and requesting him be at work in our lives. Maybe some people in this room who are just saying, you know, I've been coming to this church for a while or I just came today and I realized this is where God wants us to plant ourselves. I want to become a member of this church or my family wants to join this church. I'll be waiting right here for you. We're going to celebrate what God's doing this morning no matter what he does. Let's let him be God as we continue right now. Let's stand. Let's